0: Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Campbell. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. Today, we'll be diving into California archaeology with specialist Dr. Lynn Gamble. She's an ametrius professor at UCSB. And a lot of her recent research has focused on the Chumash tribe, which are native to Santa Barbara, but their lands extend up into Slow as well as a bit inland. And she's also worked with the Kumeyaay in San Diego. Now, I deeply, deeply enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Gamble. I think that she, along with Brian Fagan and Phil Walker, really represent, in my eyes like the golden era of UCSB archaeology and I think it's really special that I've gotten to speak with them because there's all John Johnson as well definitely part of the golden age of UCSB loved speaking with him as well it's just so unique to get to hear about the scholars that were there before you I never would have met these people probably if it weren't for the podcast and I'm eternally thankful because they've inspired me as well as, you know, provided me uh, encouraging words, assistance, and I hope they've done the same for all you listeners. I'm sure after Dr. Gamble's episode, you'll be just as enamored with her as I am. And I – let's see. Do I have anything else to share before we get into the episode? Oh, thank you everyone who entered the book giveaway. I just sent out the book to our winner. She was from Canada. And um, if you didn't enter this book giveaway on Instagram, I was giving away a signed copy of Brian Fagan's book, The Attacking Ocean. The next book I'll be giving away, which is another signed copy of one of Brian Fagan's books. It's called A Little History of Archaeology. I'll be doing that giveaway the week next week, which if you're listening to it right now, that's the week of the 13th through the 17th. I'll be doing that giveaway, so make sure you enter to win a copy of A Little History of Archaeology by Brian Fagan. Without further ado, let's get into the episode with Dr. Lynn Gamble. Well, hello, Dr. Gamble. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. How are you doing? Quite well. And how are you? I'm good. I'm happy to have you here. And actually, Dr. Curran told me, and I wasn't aware that you actually attended grad school at UCSB as well before you were hired on to teach there. So I was curious about what kind of stuck out from your grad school experience at UCSB. Um, I have a follow-up question, but we'll start there.
1: Sure. Yeah, I remember graduate school really fondly. I uh, started in the late, um, right around 1980, late 70s or 1980. And uh, it was just a fantastic time. The California archaeology program was really thriving. We uh, had uh, a contract office. So we were doing contracts out in the community. And so that that was a little bit different. And because of that, we had a lot of projects where we could pay students and others to, to work on. So I was working on a number of those. And, and uh, the collaboration between the graduate students was just wonderful. Also, we used to have a lot of gatherings. I mean, the graduate students back then would invite the faculty and all the other students over for for dinner or for a party and so there there was just a a lot going on especially with the California archaeology program at that time and everybody was cooperating with each other it was a really nice environment so I I really remember it so fondly and in some ways um, you know we still have have you know a nice group of people the same camaraderie but you know things change
0: yeah how do you feel like being a student on the campus helped better prepare you to one day teach there
1: well i think uh having been a student there i realized what was really important and and certainly you know there's the teaching but beyond that i think uh, the the camaraderie so yeah. you know when i returned i i wanted to make sure that we had certain gatherings and actually invite the whole department and uh, so, you know, I'd had a, had an annual Halloween party, and Aww. we would do recruitment when uh, when uh, we were looking for grad students. So I would have that recruitment party uh, at our house, and really enjoyed having everybody brought together because you know little things can happen, and if you have this social time together, I think it's really positive. So.
0: Yeah. And then very much in the spirit of anthropology of all being, you know, human and bonding and making, making social connections. I think it's a great, a great thing. And um, that actually is inspiring me because Amy Anderson was telling me to go to the department, um, Christmas gathering, holiday gathering. I don't think it's specifically Christmas on Friday. So now I'm going to go to that. (laughs) Good. What year did you get hired at UCSB?
1: I was hired in, in 2009
0: oh, lovely. And um, And I was before I was hired. So,
1: you know, they don't usually just hire some one straight out of graduate program. And I think I was hired for a very specific region, uh, reason, because they needed um, a a California archaeologist, someone to run the repository and the the, where we keep all the site records and, and also had a strong background in California, which I did. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I worked at for five years at UCLA and and in staff positions, and then um, uh, gained a a tenure track position at San Diego State back around 1997. So I was at San Diego State University for 12 years prior to coming to UCSB.
0: And when you were working in San Diego, would you primarily do field work on Catalina Island or were you still working up in Santa Barbara, like with the Chumash?
1: Yeah. And I haven't really worked on Catalina. Well, I've done work on Catalina. Most of my work since I've moved back here has been on Santa Cruz Island. Mm -hmm. So primarily when I was hired for that position and I took this very seriously, you know, I take the the department's needs seriously when and they really wanted me to start an active program there in in uh, San Diego and one of the first things I realized is that the archaeologists weren't working as closely with the Native American community in that area we had a long history and I was just speaking with the Chumash about that history of of going to hearings and trying to protect sites and we also all worked in the labs together and sometimes there were more Chumash in the labs uh, than 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 students uh, or archaeologists so um, it, it, it was very different in San Diego where there was there just was a real separation between the indigenous community and the archaeologists so that troubled me. So I, I applied for with the Kumeyaay uh, and had many meetings with them for a NAGPRA grant. And then that just really opened up a wonderful world. For over a year, we'd have almost all day meetings uh, once a month. We'd serve food. All the students would cook food for, for the Kumiai who were coming. And we made it a really warm, nice environment, a very uh, inviting environment, and that really opened up these doors of communication. And uh, I'm not sure how we got on that tangent there, but um, yeah, I hope.
0: No, I, I'm. Um, I actually wasn't aware that you had taught in San Diego for some time, and that's why I was curious if you were still uh, like working on the island.
1: Yeah, when I was there, I worked at Torrey Pine State Reserve. I worked mm. in the Amacca Mountains. I developed field classes. Um, uh, wrote articles on some of what was going on, but I continued to do my research on the Chumash. And so yeah. while I was there, I wrote a book on the Chumash. I uh, uh, wrote articles and continued to do my research. And a lot of that research uh, back in those days was was based on uh, collections. So collections-based mm-hmm. research um, in terms of the Chumash research while I was doing some some field work, more field work down in San Diego during that period and developed a number of things. One of them was really exciting. We used the dogs um, to to, um, identify where the cemetery was at this one site. But the the thing is we knew where it was because we had worked there for um, a couple of seasons with field class, just doing surface work. And there was an archaeologist who had excavated at the site. He excavated the cemetery, and that was about 70, 60, 70 years ago. But he left maps and records, but nobody had really put it together and knew where the cemetery was. And it was important because state parks own the land, and there's a, you know, they have to put roads in and maintain things. And so we were able to figure it out through his maps and then looking at the surface artifacts and um, they practiced cremations. And this site was, was occupied up until historic contact into like the 18, early 1800s. And so uh, um, the dogs came up and we didn't tell them a thing and they, almost all of them, just alerted on that cemetery area. And this confirmed what we believed we found with the maps and everything. So it was great.
0: That's a great example of, uh, you know, using multiple lines of evidence to confirm, um, a finding. And, you know, I think, you know, cause are you, friends with Dr. Curran that we used, um, similar dogs, like on the Jack Canton case. And it's just, it was really fascinating to speak with their handlers and learn about how they're trained and, uh, what they, what they detect in, um, the sense is, it's really cool. It's a fascinating process.
1: Yeah. 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 And it was the same group you worked with. Oh, it
0: was. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Yeah, The canine forensics, they were awesome. I fell in love with all the dogs. I was like, I (laughs) want to take one of them home. (laughs) How did you begin to develop a focus on indigenous American culture? And specifically, as you've mentioned, a lot of your research is focused on the Chumash tribe, which are native to the Santa Barbara coastal region.
1: Well, that's a interesting question because when I uh, I had a little break uh, in my undergraduate career, and I traveled quite a bit. And I spent seven months in the Maya area um, visiting archaeological sites. But this is—I had done two years of college, had done very well, but had not really discovered archaeology. And I think this is something that maybe a lot of people feel. And. Um, at that time, I just never thought I could be an archaeologist. I wanted to do archaeology. I hadn't taken that many courses, but it just was not even. I just never thought it was possible. Mm-hmm. And then after after traveling, I, I also went to Afghanistan. I saw those Buddhas prior to them being blown up. And, oh
0: my goodness! And, and, How special.
1: Yeah. Oh, it was really special, and I found myself just wanting to go to archaeological sites and then reading books rather informally about what I was seeing. And so then, after thinking about it, I thought, okay, I'll go back back to to university. And I went to Berkeley and uh, uh, finished my BA there. I finished pretty quickly because I felt okay. You know, I took this hiatus. I've got to you know catch up. And uh, but at that time, I wanted to study Mayan archaeology. But there was no one out in the field, there was no one taking students out to the field. So I couldn't get out there. And then I just happened to start doing California archaeology. And I am so glad I did, because it just opened up a whole new world to me. And I immediately just took to it. Although it's a hard Topic compared to the Maya, you know, they leave buildings and things like that, and it's 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 much more difficult to study hunter gatherer mm-hmm. culture and society. Uh, but I like the challenge.
0: Yeah, I think I think that that's really interesting. That you know, you do you think part of the reason that you were deterred initially from being like actually believing you could be an archaeologist was because at the time it was still so male dominated there probably weren't that many female archaeologists that you even knew of
1: yeah i think it was because it was male dominated but um you know i didn't come from a family of academics and Mm -hmm. so they you know even when i decided to return to to the university and and focus on archaeology my family just said what are you nuts you know you'll never get a job and um I was very independent you know I like to 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 be independent earn my own living you know I've worked hard at everything I've done but um really wanted a a a purpose and Mm -hmm. and I do think it was also I think it's a little more complicated than that because I think that women just were brought up to to not have these goals and think yeah. that they could even succeed in them. It was definitely more that you're working in the in the house. I mean, that's how it was when I did my first two years of college. I was into education and I just, you know, more like preschool education, child mm-hmm. development. And, and I I just thought that was the only path for me. And yeah. I I don't think women had the confidence. And I've gained a lot of confidence over the years. That's one good thing about yeah. getting older.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure you've been able to pass that on to students or you know other people, other collaborators, you know that you've worked with. I think it's a really, really valuable thing. I'm glad that you gained that, and you can look back and you know understand how and why. I think it's so important to be um, self-effacing and really you know understand. The processes is into to which we ended up because I think even just admitting like California archaeology fell into my lap and here we are I'm in love, just shows you know serendipity and sometimes the the greater path that leads us to where we're where we're meant to be. Um, I grew up in the Santa Barbara area, so I was super lucky to you know have learned about Chumash in in my uh, middle school and elementary school. But I was curious, um, actually, I should ask first, are you from California? No. Okay. I, so, I, uh,
1: yeah, no, I'm not.
0: Yeah. Did Did being engaged with the Chumash peoples shape your perspective of, you know, this coastal land that we're living on in Santa Barbara? And as well as, you'll have to correct me, does the Chumash land extend kind of up into like SLO and Pismo Beach area as well? Yes, it yes, does. Yes, it does. It's a huge
1: area and goes down to uh, Topanga Canyon and okay. then... Way into the interior, Uh, so it's 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 quite a large area. And once I realized uh, how to identify an archaeological site just by walking walking around, it just opened up a whole new world. Suddenly, the landscape was alive, and I you know learned where the sites were, where they were located, and worked out outside with the Chumash, and it was just an incredible. Um, opening in terms of bringing this landscape alive. And here I thought, all these years, I didn't know about the archaeology of North America. I do not think that we have publicized that enough. And and I would, when I taught North American Indians, I would ask my classes, how many people have ever heard of Cahokia, which is one of the more major sites in, in North America. And just you know, a small percentage of hands would go up. And so I was in that same boat. I just didn't realize there was significant archaeology here in our backyard. And it's just wonderful.
0: It is wonderful. (laughs) And that the Chumash community is still very vibrant and active and that you can still work, you know, directly with them. I think that's really special. I think too like they do a lot of outreach or attempt to do outreach you know to the local schools which is why I um because I, I went to visit I got to visit in elementary school it was like um a kind of like a recreated Shumash um village and I feel bad that I don't remember more about it but that's, that's all I have I remember it was on the beach <laughs>
1: What, what, oh really that's yeah. fantastic yeah yeah so they're really active here you know they take out the tamal the plank canoe yes. on a regular basis and um uh, they have california oriented more traditional oriented kind of uh, california indian days up at the reservation or something like that whether it's kind of like a powwow but with more traditional california dances too
0: that's really cool. Have you been able to experience a lot of like the traditional Chumash ceremonies with some of the members? Think about
1: it. I was, I had a previous marriage. I was married by uh, a Chumash person oh. and there was a sweat lodge on our property that was in Topanga Canyon. I'm no longer with that husband, but we're very close. And we're good friends. He's an archaeologist. So we had Sweats on on the property. Mm-hmm. We uh, were married in a circle outside, and so did participate. Down in the Kumeyaay area, it was a little different because uh, they they had these um, bird songs that they sing, and also this traditional gambling peon p e o n, and there were we because of the NAGPRA grant and we got to know the Kumiai, we were invited to a lot of Paon um, matches, which are really ceremonial. Uh, there's all these fires that are lit and singing goes on and it lasts all day into the night, all night. And I was invited to a number of, of those events, to some of the uh, winter solstice events. Mm-hmm. But now that I think about it, I, I also, attended some of those here in the Chumash area. So yeah, I've working with the indigenous community has been so rewarding.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad. I really, that was part of the reason that aside from just your research being fascinating, that I really wanted to, you know, speak with you on the podcast because I know how much, you know, you care about the, the tribes that you work with, and it's such a undervalued thing in anthropology. Like, we can touch on it in interviews and we can touch on it in research, but sitting down and really hearing how in depth, you know, you engage with them and care about them is, I think it's so important because hopefully it will inspire people going forward to apply the same, um, apply the same techniques, you know, when, when they choose, you know, if if it's California archeology span or if it's in another state in the Americas or in their own, you know, in, you know, indigenous country, I think it's, I just hope that we're reminding everyone how important these things are and that they're not. Yeah. It's it's a whole new day. And that's
1: something that,
0: uh, you know, Brian Fagan taught
1: in our department and I was his TA. And this is kind of going back to your initial question. And he taught intro to archeology, span a big class, you know, two, back then we had slide projectors. He had two slide projectors and, Um, But he had two themes that he kept coming back to and that he wanted students to remember. And one of them was to respect the descendants of the area where you're working. And and so I had continued that on in my teaching. The other thing was do not loot, do not pick up artifacts. And a lot of people get into archaeology because they... They come from that background the collector mm-hmm. background and then they reform yeah. <laughs> they stop, stop doing that uh, and um, um, uh, work in a in a, a more scientific fashion and so these are themes that i i think are so significant and since you know gosh how many years ago was that i mean 50 gosh has it been that long 40 years ago i mean things have 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 just be, Finally, we see more indigenous yeah. communities take, you know, they have the control now. Mm-hmm. They, and that's how it should be. These are their descendants. And, and, but I think what's important is, is to communicate what we can learn yes. also from the objects, from, you know, the human remains and uh, what, what that can tell us about the indigenous communities and how they can bring that to their children and grandchildren in the future.
0: Most definitely. Yeah. Continuing to pass on the knowledge is so important. Um, So you, you know, if we've kind of touched on briefly, like the many things within the Chumash that you've done research on and, you know, you've published information on Chumash society, traditions, social dimensions of the burial practices, the effects of paleoclimactic variability, feasting and ritual practice, architecture, all sorts of things. I'm curious what you know, if anything was kind of like surprising or moving or really kind of caught you off guard, because I think so often we go into research with our set research questions, but what can be really interesting is the experiences we have that morph the research questions into what, you know, ultimately gets published. So I was just kind of curious and feel free to talk on, you know, any piece you're, you're in, you know, uh, a prolific scholar. So there are plenty, plenty of things to talk on. So, you know, choose as you will, but I'm, I'm excited to hear what, you know, what's been captivating and surprising for you.
1: Well, I mean, there's so many, I, I, I'm just such a curious person. So I have Mm -hmm. to kind of Hem myself in sometimes, uh, but uh, the the research I did on the plank canoe was uh, mm. uh, it was was really an interesting topic, and it grew out of some discussions when I was a graduate student at UCSB with other graduate students about what was a canoe drill versus a fish hook drill because mm. they use stone drills to 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 drill the uh, plank canoe holes because if you have sewn boats you have to have drill all these holes in in this case primarily redwood and then they're sewn together and uh, there are a lot of they, they made a lot of holes in a plank canoe. I, I counted them up for this one archaeological specimen that we had. We had part of it to, to see how many there were, and it was a lot more than we see in the ethnographic literature. But as I was doing that research, so we were having some disagreements about what was a canoe trail what was a fishhook trail. And I had my ideas and that they were very distinctively different. And there was a a grad student there, Doug Bamforth, who's now at the University of Colorado. Let me see, so that, yeah, the plank boat research. So we'd had this debate and then Doug was doing high powered microscopic analysis Mm -hmm. on chipstone tools. And so I said, so let's take a look at these. And I took notes. And so then I, I, I believe we did discover from from that those quick quick looks at, at some of these artifacts at UCSB that the canoe drills were used on wood. And, and it, it looked like that. And the fish hook drills, what I was calling fish hook drills, were used to drill a shell. So many years later, I start thinking about how we could see in the archaeological record when the plank canoe was first made, and that we needed to systematically look at all the lines of evidence. So I went to, I think, seven repositories um, and, and studied uh, remains from the, from the plank boat and it included the drills, the asphaltum you know, it's it's basically the tar that you see on the beaches. Yep. They get it from the nice seeps, and so they plug their their canoes canoe holes after they sewed them up with asphaltum, and they'd also caulk the planks in the canoe. so they were more waterproof with asphaltum. And so I looked at the asphaltum, the canoe plugs, the, the and then some of the planks themselves. They were still preserved in in. In some cases, in the late period. And um, those, you know, getting a date from something like that's not going to be that helpful because we knew it was hit of a later period. But, but the stone and the asphaltum preserves back in time. So I was able to establish that those drills were in fact used uh, to drill the plank canoes. And I was able to distinguish asphalt and plugs for the plank canoes. From you know, they also plugged other things. They would mm-hmm. make whistles and put asphalt and plugs, and and use use it for a lot of other things. So I was able to identify the differences by measuring everything systematically. And the depth of the polish on those drills was exactly the thickness of of the uh, the planks that I studied. So there was, I took multiple yeah. lines of evidence, and then I thought. I wonder if this is the earliest sewn boats in plank boats in all of the Americas. And I started looking throughout the Americas. Unfortunately, when I went, when I submitted this for publication, some of the reviewers said you shouldn't do all of the Americas. And uh, just just talk about the two matches. I still put the die that this was the earliest example. And I gave some of my data. I mean, I did quite a bit of research down in South America where they make a plank boat, but it's much,
0: much later. And it's much. Yeah. Simpler. Wasn't it in Peru that they do that? Yeah. Chileo Island. Mm, yes. yes. I remember Chileo learning Island. about that with um, professor Alicia Boswell. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I love yeah. taking class with her. I'm in a class with her right now. And um, I, I just, I I am also just fascinated by, by Peruvian archeology. span I think ultimately that'll probably be where my, um, my own personal research kind of goes. I just, I'm endlessly captivated by it. And it's one of those things like where, for example, if I'm writing a grad application, it's like, okay, explain how you became interested in that. It's like, well, I was just reading a book on Andean archeology span and I didn't want to put it down. And it was a bit rare to not want to put down my textbook, you know, and, and so that it's sometimes things they just, they just, they just click and they just are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. But also what you were saying about the asphalt, um, now, anyone, when you come back from the beach with tar on your feet, just think about its historical and archaeological significance, and maybe it'll be less annoying. But it is very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point.
1: Yeah, no, the asphaltum is key to making those boats. Uh, you need some kind of adhesive, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, in in other areas they might use pine pitch or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the asphaltum was really significant for many yeah. purposes. Yeah, yep. I call it the super glue. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, it 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 is super glue. Yeah. I can, I can attest having scrubbed <laughs> a lot of it off my feet. And one day I was like, I'm going to go for a run on the beach. I'm going to be so healthy and it was during the summer and I came back and there was a layer an inch thick on my tennis oh. shoes. I have not worn them since oh. cuz I literally don't know what to do with them. Oil. Baby oil. Yeah, baby oil. <laughs> yes, definitely. But still
1: it would take a lot of work. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, so now I'm like, oh, just no more running on the beach. But um so I am currently um a research associate in the PL Walker Bioarchaeology Lab and but I have never had the opportunity to meet him he's passed on um but a legend at UCSB and I was just I know you worked with him and I was just curious what you know what some of your fond memories are of your collaboration and of you know just being on the campus at the same time Oh it was fantastic working with Phil and we had all these
1: plans um to work with each other when I was hired at UCSB, he unfortunately died right before I arrived, and I think um, I, I talked to him just a couple. You know, I was with him just a couple days before he he passed. He had a, a a really big effect on me in terms of Phil. Always thought outside the box. He would he would stretch things out so he wouldn't just take the 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 first response, and he kind of pushed things to make sure things were accurate. And he just taught me so much. We wrote this article on on uh, the cemetery and the mortuary uh, remains there at uh, Malibu, and that took years. Uh, he was busy working on other projects, but also he wanted everything just so. and. Uh, we would just have these lengthy conversations because he thought outside the box and I kind of do, we get off on these tangents mm-hmm. talking about this, that, and the other. We had all these plans to, to, to do this research. He was such a generous person. He was really smart, but you know, then this was written up um, and I had not even realized how pronounced it was, but when he was a child, he had been identified as having, um, I think he was left-handed and he had some troubles with reading, so he was identified as a uh, special needs or something, I don't know, special needs, but, and so they never thought he could go on academically and here he became yeah. one of the most uh, respected by, a bioarchaeologist in the world, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, scholars would come all over to, to study with Phil and everybody just really loved working with Phil. And uh, he was just a very kind, generous person. He'd be very generous with his data. Um, he. We did another project together and we were planning to write it up and now I've been working with, there was a foreign student who was here for a while and she looked at some of these um, sea mammal bones and we think they were trading them from the islands to Petis Point, one of the sites between Carpinteria and Santa Barbara. And we hope to get that written up still. Uh, You know, he, he passed and we didn't have all his files. So she went ahead and cataloged everything based on the notes on the tags and we're getting closer.
0: That's great. Yeah. I know one of my favorite stories that I heard about him was that he would offer extra credit to anyone who would just bring a bone in that they found <laughs> on the beach, <laughs> and I thought it was pretty funny because I believe Sarah McClure told me that about a couple like weeks after I had found a bone on the beach, just walking down by my dorm, and I was going to bring it back to my room and then bring it into osteo lab, but I was convinced, and I still am to this day, that my roommates they didn't like me anyway would have absolutely been disturbed <laughs> if I brought a bone back from the beach. But then hearing that he actually used to offer extra credit for people that did that, I was like, no, see, I was right. It is cool. I should have brought it into lab, but my roommates would think I'm crazy. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, you know, another thing,
1: he, I went to his service when, you know, they had it at Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History. Oh, the room was overflowing. There. The My room goodness. was overflowing in the main Fleischman Auditorium. Uh, it was it was amazing. Scholars came from all over. Um, uh, well-known bioarchaeology professors, and it was it was really moving. But some of his nieces and nephews, Bill didn't have any children, but he spent a lot of time with his nieces and nephews. And he they come in the summer, and he sort of almost set up this kind of camp you know but this one nephew is talking about when he was younger and I think this is when Phil was still in Chicago and they were out and about and they found a dead animal outside and Phil says oh we have to take this and and dissect it (laughs) so this kid you know he's just a kid you know they take it back and he and there were all kinds of just kind of wild stories and his nieces and nephews just adored him and a lot of them went on to you know uh, scholarly careers they were so well spoken I mean he really had a positive effect he also was very concerned about NAGPRA Mm -hmm. and the indigenous community and he interviewed them and I it would be fantastic to get that I think he he filmed these interviews before NAGPRA to ask them about their about, opinion on, yeah, NAGPRA. on NAGPRA. So he could see that it was coming. He he um, understood that he was really into open communications, mm-hmm. very into open communications. And of course, if anybody found something like what they thought were human remains, Phil would always be out there in the field working with the Chumash. Yeah. Uh, so he had a good, good working relationship with most of the Chumash.
0: Well, that was really heartwarming for me to hear. And like I said, I just, I work in his lab and I know so little about him. So I'm really glad that, you know, thank you for sharing that with me, but I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it, you know, just as deeply Um, completely switching, (laughs) completely going 180 degrees turn. I know some of your recent research endeavors have been on the antiquity of money, which is really, really fascinating. And you've been conducting a review of the use of shell beads as a form of currency among the Chumash and trying to determine kind of the origins and the time period when it began. So could you tell us a bit more about the details of this project? I know the results have been really fascinating. So that's Congratulations.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that that project really was a surprise for me, too, because I was invited to a Society for American Archaeology uh, to be in a session on um, early uses of money. And this was from a worldwide perspective. And I was the only North American archaeologist in, in, in the session. And then we, we decided to write this up uh, and have a special journal issue in the journal of uh, God, what is it? I think it was. I'm sorry. I get mixed up. The, That's fine. Uh, the name of that journal. Uh, it's a good one. And so during that process, the two organizers of the session kind of kept pushing me. In terms of thinking, and they would ask these questions, and they worked outside the region. They didn't know that much about uh, Chumash archaeology, or really North American archaeology, and but they were they were doing their job. You know, they were saying, "Well, wait a minute, how do you know that? How do you know that?" And so, um, as a result of that process, I started looking at some of our assumptions in more detail. And one of the assumptions, and I think it's a good one, um, was that you know that we all agreed on. And this is like you know, not many scholars sometimes have disagreements, but almost everyone agreed that okay, we see this certain type of bead, and it's uh, it's called a cup bead. And beads are hard to talk about because they're so little and mm-hmm. and uh, it, it, it's hard to believe what we do with them. But beads are like pottery in other regions, like they're mm-hmm. like pottery in Egypt or, or in Peru where we can date the sites. But the hard part is they're so small. Uh, I mean, there are some that go through a window screen. So yeah. Oh my gosh. A window screen. When I was photographing them, I had to hold my breath
0: or the so you would, would, inhale- oh, my would blow
1: around on the and I had them on a, a piece of velvet even so they you know there was some something for them to stick to I guess you could say but yeah no I had to hold my breath they were so so tiny and these were drilled with stone with 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 you know they didn't have metal drills they could have oh, used yeah. lion whiskers they did use sea lion whiskers for some yeah drilling long holes in some of the tubular beads but so the way we can date these sites, and we find out a lot more too, is by measuring the beads. We measure the diameter, the hole size, the thickness, and we found standardized types. And Chester King was one of the first people to, to really document this and, and clearly in his book, his dissertation, which then became a book. And uh, so, he's the one who suggested that these cup beads represent the introduction of money and he stated this in part because they were highly standardized and their distribution in the cemetery Mm -hmm. and um, he found that everybody could have some access to cup beads but prior to that time there's another type of bead that's quite common we call them saucers and it's because they're kind of shaped like a saucer but they're Tiny uh, beads, and so those saucer beads were more restricted in their distribution. So when I gave this presentation, and I'm talking, you know, we have people who are working all over the world, and a lot of them are working with coins, like in Europe, mm. and and they're saying, well, why are you why are you saying if it was money, it had to be in the hands of everyone? Because that's not how coinage started coinage started with a restricted group of people and they recognized it as money and i thought well that's an assumption that i have just accepted and then i started looking into definitions of money and 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 came up with after looking at a number of of, uh, I, I really delved into the economic literature and, and, and not even, some of it anthropological economics, some of it not. But realized standardization is really important so that you know, you know we know what a dime mm-hmm. looks like, quarter looks like, and this is the same kind of things with those beads. Some of them would be decorative, but some of them were probably used for money. So then I realized, well, those saucers were just as standardized as the later, bead type cup. So I started looking into that more and saying, yeah. And there were a lot of them and they traded, there was one individual who was buried with about 30,000 of these up in the Bay Area. And we believe they came from the Chumash. Mm. The Chumash would make, we have massive evidence of bead making out on the Channel Islands Mm. and some on the mainland. And we don't see that up in central California. But we see the beads and they're the exact same kind of bead during certain time periods. And so we think those were traded from the Chumash area. We're still resolving that, and tightening that up. But at any rate, so I suggested, well, wait a minute. I think these were also considered a type of currency. And uh, when you look at definitions of money, they're just all over the place. I mean, it kind of, because you know, there's that big stone money. Yeah. And Yak. And so, you know, that's that's not really portable, which is usually one definition of money, but sometimes they 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 shift that. So, yeah, I proposed that. And it's been very interesting. I mean, uh, Science News picked picked that up and they call me and they say, do you realize this means that this is the earliest example of money in the Americas? (laughs) And so I, you know, I was kind of like, well, we did that with the plank canoe. And then, <laughs> so I, I, I was a little nervous then and that I hoped I hadn't, see, I didn't look at all of the Americas. I just kind of focused on North America and, and uh, because it was really too much, but then I started looking at it before I had a interview with Science News yeah, and yeah. Uh, 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 spoke with a, a a woman, and she's the one who wrote all these articles about Mesoamerica, South American earliest monies. So I called her up, and I I read her articles, you know, did my mm-hmm. homework, and then asked her if you know, because I was afraid, oh, I'm missing something, or I'm you know. And so I asked her if there were any other examples. And by the way, she went to UCSB. She was oh. a student from UCSB. She was one of the. Um, Earlier female grad students graduating, hmm. but she said, No, I that nothing's changed from those articles that I wrote, and uh, we don't have anything as early as what you're speaking of. Wow. So that was kind of exciting, <laughs> but I will see what comes of that. I mean, I, I the, the article is getting a lot of attention, so that's good.
0: Yeah, it's really exciting, and this is completely random, but every time I see so in in our um, like our skeletal lab, we have a lot of faunal remains. And every time I see like the shark vertebrae, they remind me of Chumash like beads almost because they have like a very similar, like very small hole in the center. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, these shark vertebrae could literally be beads, actually, you know, with how cool and how detailed they are. They actually did make some out of uh, out of bones and I
1: think oh. out of uh, vertebrae. Yeah. Yeah. Those shark vertebrae, they fool you in the field too. You'll see Mm. them. There's a hole actually worn out, you know, they've broken in half and there's a little hole there. And so they fool you all the time or in the lab when you're sorting. Uh, So they are similar. They made so many different types of beads. It's just amazing. And we have good records of of bead making uh, or the use of beads in California going back thousands of years eight to ten thousand years so yeah, it's really awesome
0: and i think it's awesome you know that you're still pursuing pursuing you know research questions that fascinate you i said the same thing with you know i had brian fagan on gosh uh about a month ago now and you know i'm just i'm so inspired that you guys are still uh asking the questions that fascinate you and you know keeping 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 up with the re- with the current research it's it's awesome
1: yeah, it really keeps you going. I mean, uh, yeah. right now we're, we're doing ground penetrating radar oh. at this uh, site on Santa Cruz Island. It's just been incredible um, what we're finding. I had a big meeting yesterday about that. So very excited about all this. Yeah, there's a lot That's happening. Wonderful. I have too many projects, so I'm looking <laughs> for people to work with and yeah. uh, kind of continue these.
0: So one of the last questions that I have for you is, um, about you know your life outside of anthropology, I always find it really fun to hear about you know people's hobbies and favorite things to do. Uh, so, what are some of your pastimes? And I always like to ask if people have pets because we definitely talk all about pets on the podcast. Oh, I have pets. I have, <laughs> I I have,
1: um, always had a dog or a cat, and uh, more recently it's been dogs and. I lost uh, this rescue that we had for over 10 years and um, during uh, the pandemic and we were all locked down together. So it was a really moving time, this older dog. uh, And we all bonded so deeply (laughs) and he died right in the living room. Just, oh Oh my God. So, so his name was Louie and he, everybody you know he would be at the halloween parties and parties here and everybody knew louie in the department so he he was a really big sweet dog and so i've been looking and looking for a dog and now i have a a, a beautiful dog i just oh. love her i here she's lying right next to me oh. she got into mud oh. this morning so Oh my goodness. <laughs> what is so this? This is Lulu. This is Lulu. Oh. And uh,
0: she needs a some sort of doodle mix.
1: Yeah, she's an yeah. Australian Labradoodle. And, you know, I couldn't find a non shedding dog uh, as a rescue. I looked months and months, and we were just, we just really wanted a dog. Oh. So. This is oh, the first Lou. puppy I've always had rescue. It's this first puppy I've ever had. And we're just in yeah. love. So her yes. name's Lulu.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah. So I, um, during the pandemic made the decision that I, that I needed a dog for, you know, to assist with my mental health. And, um, I also was like, I want a hypoallergenic dog. And I have, I adopted from the Santa Barbara Humane Society, the most cute American Eskimo Cocker Spaniel mix and oh, she's about seven and a half so when you were saying about your dog it just made me think about when Daisy's gonna pass but it's just there were we're so lucky to have them in our lives for the time we do you know I think about like the six years of Daisy's life that I didn't get to be a part of and I'm just like oh, I wish I could have been a part of that but they're just such they're such gifts and oh my gosh she's over there being cute in the bean beanbag so sweet. <laughs>
1: Wonderful. I'm so glad for you. Well, you yeah. know, she's, she's got Cocker Spaniel on her too. Oh, and yeah. that supposedly kind of calms down the lab doodle, uh, poodle thing. And
0: yeah. uh,
1: it's a, it real, they, they're sweet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we, yeah. I just love my,
0: my dogs. Yeah. Not to toot <laughs> Daisy's horn, but she is the most mellow dog I've ever met. And so I think that part of it must just be like the cocker spaniel american eskimo mix because both of those dogs are supposed to be like super sweet natured she is like the pinnacle of those two breeds in that she is the calmest dog ever and it's so cool
1: what and you know that's an unusual mix that's fantastic yeah there's a we see some of the um What is she again, the Eskimo?
0: uh, Yeah, American Eskimo, which I hate saying because Eskimo is offensive, but it's like, oh.
1: That's a name. So American Eskimo, we walk in the neighborhood and they don't seem to bark
0: much. No, Daisy never barks.
1: And they're two dogs and they just can't wait to, Lulu can't wait to see them. You know, they come up to the fence and they're all in, in in, in, and I keep saying those are the sweetest dogs everywhere we go. They just seem so nice and everything.
0: Hey, everybody, it's Gabby here. This is the end of the episode. Dr. Gamble and I kind of digressed into a conversation about our dogs, but I left some of it in. So I hope you enjoyed. Her dog, Lulu, is adorable. And I think everyone knows all about Daisy, uh, the love of my life, Miss Daisy May, my dog, in case you haven't put that together yet. <laughs> and yeah, thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on Instagram, at thatanthropodcast, on Twitter, at thatanthropod. And leave us a rating and review on iTunes if that's where you listen. If you listen on Spotify, give us a follow. Engage with our content. Share it with a friend maybe. And look forward to, in the new year, some book recommendations because guess what I'm going to do over break? Some pleasure reading. And of course, my pleasure reading um, Climate Chaos by Brian Fagin's on my list. Um, I just picked up some Patricia Cornwell books. Um, and yeah, have a nice holidays.